Welcome to the Awesomers.com podcast. If you love to learn, and if you're motivated to expand your mind, and heck, if you desire to break through those traditional paradigms and find your own version of success, you are in the right place. Awesomers around the world are on a journey to improve their lives and the lives of those around them. We believe in paying it forward, and we fundamentally try to live up to the great Zig Ziglar quote, where he said, you can have everything in your life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. It doesn't matter where you came from, it only matters where you're going. My name is Steve Simonson, and I hope you will join me on this awesomer journey. If you're launching a new product manufactured in China, you will need professional, high-resolution, Amazon-ready photographs. Because Simo Global has a team of professionals in China, you will oftentimes receive your listings photographs before your product even leaves the country. This streamlined process will save you the time, money, and energy needed to concentrate on marketing and other creative content strategies before your item is in stock and ready for sale. Visit simoglobal.com to learn more, because a picture should be worth 1,000 keywords. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. You are listening to episode number 73 of the Awesomers.com podcast series. And I wanted to just share that, as always, you can just go to awesomers.com slash 73 to see the today's show notes and details. Now, today, again, this is part uh, two of our three-part series with Greg Silberman. And we're going to talk more about uh, some of his background and some of the financial things that are really important to not just entrepreneurs, but awesomers of any uh, walk of life. That includes, you know, any business people, any artists, any innovators, anybody who is really an awesomer out there. We need to know how to consider the management of our money and our assets over a long time. Now, as you may recall from our first episode, Greg has been personally responsible and on teams that manage billions and billions of dollars of wealth. And this type of management, this type of experience, makes Greg a really great resource to listen to. So this is part two of three of this uh, particular interview. It is a fascinating story. Uh, first of all, it's it's hard to top uh, hot audit talk, but when you get into derivative swaps, I mean, come on, we're, gonna, we're just laying it out there for these guys. <laughs> this is gold, pure gold, baby. So now, Greg, <laughs> I love uh, nerdy stuff, and I'm a you know kind of a longtime computer guy, Linux and, and all that uh, from way back. So I definitely appreciate the fact that you are the guy at a world-class firm, still to this day, JP Morgan would be you know a top top five or top three firm, if not the number one firm. And so what a great experience and what a great opportunity for you to be there on the ground floor. Um, by the way, you know, that image you painted of, you know, kind of seeing the, the stock floor kind of open up, uh, very telling because that, that exciting uh, floor atmosphere was something I think drew a lot of young people in, especially those mm. of the numbers. Uh, fascinating that, that you saw that. So once you got to JP Morgan, you started in that derivative business. Um, did, did you find that that resonated with you? Did you like that more than the outing? It sounds like you did. Oh, I did. I did. No question about it. And I, I, uh, try to brush up as best as possible, my visual basic skills. And so I would create, um, VBA scripts, uh, to, you know, to help. And then the, the whole question of valuation and, um, linking into, you know, Bloomberg terminals and getting real time valuation and, and, you know, front office to back office. It was just a wonderful experience and a, a great organization. Um, but again, uh, Steve, it was just the scale which was just which just blew me away. I mean, the notional value of these derivatives were, you know, in the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. 
um, you know, and you're speaking to a, 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 a South African boyki, as we call him, uh, you know, like a, a little South African guy who was used to dealing with, you know, rands and cents. And so, again, it was just, it was compelling for me. And I, I, I thought it was almost like a puzzle, like I needed to figure out how this puzzle worked. And, um, you know, certainly immersed myself. I had always been the case, but became even more of a market student, uh, you know, went ahead and did my CFA and um, read all the, the market greats and the great traders and, and you know, try to follow and understand. Um, and I think that's when my education really did begin because uh, and it, being an investor is very much, again, you know, leaning back onto my psychology uh viewpoint, being an investor is very much about knowing yourself, uh, less so than maybe knowing the instruments that are out there and, you know, how, how the mechanics works. And I'm sure you, you, we might get into that. But that was really where my, my education began. And it was a self-education because you really need to understand your pain points. How much pain can you tolerate uh, in the market? Uh, or for that, for that um, matter, how much, how much greed uh, are you are you predisposed towards because you know there's a selling point for everything and there's a buying point for everything and that's normally your own th thermostat which governs that yeah i think that's very well said uh it is interesting you know how many people will buy into something at one time or another that everyone else is selling out of right so the, the that constant idea of trading somebody sees it as a good buy-in and somebody sees it as a good time to sell that's a classic market uh so the the cfa that uh chartered financial analyst i'm uh, guessing that's that's definitely a level higher than the chartered accountant uh what what types of things did that take you into that may have been different or unique or new at that point yeah, um, I, I wouldn't say it's higher necessarily. I'd say it's just a different tilt where, where it's much more focused on investment, portfolio management, uh, stock selection, fundamental analysis, technical analysis. There was some behavioral finance as well. And then there was, and, and not don't get me wrong, uh, in accounting and auditing, um, uh, ethics and com compliance is, is a huge deal. But there's a different level, I wouldn't say level, but there's a different slant to ethics and compliance when it comes to managing money, certainly managing somebody else's money. Uh, it's a huge, it's, 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 all, it's um, all inspiring, let's put it that way, you know, and frightening, frankly, when you're, you're helping others with their, their hard-earned wealth. So there was definitely a very large section in the CFA around ethics and compliance around other people's funds managing other people's funds well that's good that's a lesson uh, bernie madoff must have missed at his uh, uh week at uh cfa camp <laughs> uh i'm not sure he had any credentials but that that is a common thing that entrepreneurs especially are worried about you know putting people into place that may not have the ethics or may not have the their best interests at heart how do how do you know just regular layman uh people out there analyze you know who's good and who's bad in that in that context you know it seems like a, a tough thing to figure out it it is it is gosh if i i could write a book and it. it is it is super tough um you know at the end of the day i believe we all have some some level of gut sixth instinct um if that's what it's called you know and we and we can judge maybe not consciously but unconsciously we can certainly judge others or, or we have this funny feeling you often hear i had a feeling about that 
Um, but I wouldn't certainly rely on that, you know, for, uh, first and foremost. So, look, you've got to do your homework. You've got to understand who you're dealing with. You've got to understand uh, their background, what they've done, uh, what they haven't done, any issues they've had. Now, the, the, the beauty about our space is that um, there are a lot of regulators in the space and there's a lot of compliance in the space. And so if you've ever come across a regulator uh, and, you know, uh, were found to be a little bit naughty or whatever the case may be, that's going to be on your record. Uh, a U4, for example, is a record for a broker where all of this is recorded. Uh, and then certainly, you know, when you're interviewing somebody um, to invest money with them, they would have what's known as a DDQ, a due diligence questionnaire, which should theoretically lay out all that on it. Uh, reference checks are, are also of paramount importance. So um, you've got to really just triangulate and try to get as much information as possible. And even then, it's just, it's just not a foolproof process. I mean, there are bad actors out there. And um, they do their level best to to show you that they're not bad actors. Yeah, it's it is amazing how some of the the uh, so-called bad actors are are really really good at kind of hitting objections head on. Uh, I've seen recently a uh, a presentation, and you know they started out with uh, why the IRS thinks what I'm doing is a scam, and it's like oh that's a <laughs> that's a very uh, <laughs> interesting way to begin and then you know of course they went on to say that this is why it's not actually a scam but uh that that whole argument came across very well but at the end of the day uh that sixth sense was uh tingling and the gut instinct is like no that's that's not going to work for me so it is, yeah. it is well it can, it can there's also an element of salesmanship you know and and right. i'm not saying that's good or bad but again you've got to somehow peel peel across that layer to know that it's not just salesmanship and it's it's something a little bit more nefarious. Yeah, I think yeah, for me, your advice is very good to triangulate and figure out, you know, from all the, just like you would be um, in, investigating any other resource or any other long-term, you know, supply relationship, you would try to find out, as you said, referrals, any background, any uh, publicly available information. I think all that's important. And to me, if if there's a big upfront win for that, you know, firm versus a long-term aligned uh, objective where both parties kind of, you know, win the longer they're together. That to me is also a clue. Uh, what do you think about that? Let's pause here for a moment and take a quick sponsor break. Catalyst 88 was developed to help entrepreneurs achieve their short and long-term goals in e-commerce markets by utilizing the power of shared entrepreneurial wisdom. Entrepreneurship is nothing if not lessons to be learned. Learn from others. Learn from us. I guarantee that we will learn from you. Visit Catalyst88.com because your success is our success. A giddy up. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Yeah, that's that's a key feature. You know, we always talk about a win-win situation. I, it's not it's not always possible, but um, the 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 opposite to that, which I do find a very good yardstick, is that if you're in in a negotiation, let's you know whatever you're negotiating, a term sheet, a sale, or whatever it is, the the the, the phrase, if both parties w walk away dissatisfied, you you've probably come to you know the most equine um, the most equal arrangement. So, you know, no one gets everything they want. Everyone gets a little bit, you know, put off. Uh, that tends to be a, a that tends to be the best win-win situation. 
Uh, and again, depending on the nature of the investment, you certainly want everyone's interests aligned. And, and alignment of interest normally takes place along a timeline, if you will. So, so exactly as you said, Steve, you don't want somebody getting everything up front and you getting the back end uh, or vice versa. You'd prefer to take you know, less on the back end, but a little bit more up front, et cetera. So just so everyone feels like they are aligned and that the incentives are, are got everyone marching in the same direction. Again, it's very easy to say that and explain it in, you know, in a verbose way. It's very hard to do it in practice, as I'm sure you're, you are aware. Yeah, I think uh, it is just the nature of the beast. Um, but I think, you know, as you have talked about it in a very transparent way, that's helpful and additive to those out there who, who find themselves, you know, looking and, and in the market. I know there's a lot of um, angst and uncertainty when it comes to investment, especially when an entrepreneur may have a, a liquidity event. You know, maybe they've taken a million dollars or two million dollars or, or maybe more off the table. They're, they're, there's kind of a, a sense that the entrepreneur's risk changes, the risk profile changes, because now some of their chips are off the table, maybe all of their chips from that present business, and they want to make sure that they preserve that capital. So do you find that sometimes the risk profile changes from when they operated a business to when they have that, that big old pile of gold uh, from the liquidity event? Uh, are you talking specifically to the entrepreneur or the, or the, the business venture? Well, the, let's just assume that the entrepreneur sold the business venture, so they're out mm -hmm. of that, and they may have been, you know, kind of mavericking it up and and risky and and doing what they did in business to get there. But as soon I found anyway, uh, often the, when they make the sale, that they their risk profile changes when it comes to that big old uh, liquidity yeah. event. Uh, do you find that as well? Oh, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, and no. How's that for an answer? Okay. Sure. So, so what I what I find is this is that um, you know it's it's blood, sweat, and tears to get a business off the ground and to grow it to the point where you have a liquidity event. Uh, you know, and and well done, kudos to whoever achieves that. And that you know when they do have the liquidity event, that they may want to take the the pedal the the foot off the pedal for a little bit and and coast and just I guess gain some sanity back in their life. So absolutely. I would I would see the risk return profile of that person changing uh, diametrically. Maybe there's a, a lot of things they wanted to take care of but but couldn't because it was you know all the chips were on on black at that point. So that happens all the time. But then you get serial entrepreneurs who are you know just love the game and um, they're out of one and maybe they go down to the beach for for a couple of months or travel Europe or do whatever they want. But then they, they're hungry for the game again. They're hungry for the adrenaline or the excitement or whatever it is that propels them. Um, and, and in they go again. And maybe they're going into something, uh, you know, again, all on black, but this time bigger. Um, again, it's the propensity of that person. It's their makeup. It's, it's how they're, they're built. Um, but certainly, the more wealth you generate, it, the more diversification you should have. It just makes perfect sense because you you don't want to go back to ground zero you certainly don't want to go back there yeah understood i think that's very well said uh there are certainly a number of serial entrepreneurs who you know some of it may just be the love of the game some of it as you said uh, or at least alluded to is just it's in the hard wiring right of who who we may be <laughs> and yeah you know, it's like breathing to some people yeah, I, I can tell you, it's that definitely, it, it draws me back every time. Uh, I tried to retire and I was miserable. Uh, so that's <laughs> not what I'm 
so um, let's drop like golf. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> golf was fine, but uh, after you know, lots of golf and lots of vacations, it just got to be uh, too much. So <laughs> I had to do something to keep my brain exercised. I hear you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let me ask you this, Greg the the idea of you know maybe a common entrepreneurial problem when when somebody approaches you at ACG, what what is a typical situation they may approach you with? Is there a, 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 I don't know, a common problem that they say, hey, I've got this situation and I need help with it? Is that how they approach you at ACG or, or do you have a, such a scenario? Well, as I said, I kind of wear, uh, I don't wear two hats, but I have two primary roles. And, and one role is to, you know, uh, speak with the clients go through their performance and their accounts. Again, I'm not uh, the relationship guy. They have a, 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 a gal. Uh, they have someone on point that they can call all the time. That's not me. But typically on a quarterly basis, if the client's in the office or we go out for lunch, you know, they want to hear from me. They want to hear about what is it that I'm thinking. And, and just to be clear, it's not uh, you know, it's not an edict. Uh, I chair our investment committee. There are five of us on the investment committee. Uh, and those people all have voices and they all have different ideas and, and ways of viewing the market. And again, it's my job to take that on board. Uh, but it's almost like a, a, d- a democratic organization where we have a vote on, on a change. So what I say doesn't necessarily go. Uh, and thank goodness for that because I'm, I don't bet, uh, you know, 100% all the time. So that's one element is really just the spokesman, meet the client, uh, you know, shake, shake the hands and, um, just give a brief synopsis of, of what we think the market's doing and, and how their account has been performing. So that's uh, maybe a problem or a, uh, a role that I facilitate. The other one, frankly, is the sifting through of investment ideas to find that one little golden nugget. And I've got to tell you, and if you, I think you can look at the industry norm, you, know, you, you probably will have to look at 100 investments before you make the one. Uh, so one or two out of a hundred, you've got to sift through and do some kind of due diligence before you, you find that, you know, one or two. And even if that one or two, uh, you know, you've got, a, you've, got a, you've got a high likelihood that both of them are not going to work out. So it's a very, actually very tough, tough job to identify the winners from the losers. And that's certainly a problem that I've worked on my entire career and I continue to work on and to refine myself and to refine certainly the people that I talk to and listen to as far as investment ideas are concerned. So that's more art than science. And it's not something I think I'm ever going to get perfectly right. Uh, but it's certainly a problem that I've taken on board. And it's, it's, it's something I need to work on uh, continuously, Steve. Well, I can see that it's, it would be an endless, almost treadmill of, you know, work to, to keep that, uh, that the idea flowing, you know, happening and the vetting process happening, uh, so much to be done. Uh, when when you guys at ACG and as I recall, you're the CIO there, so I'm saying uh, chief investment officer. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Sure. And so when you, as a company, look at things, are your clients going into individual deals? Are they going into portfolio deals? How does it work for for the client side? Uh, again, we we favor diversification, so we run a number of strategies. We'll run, um, uh, for example, a large cap growth strategy where myself and some of my team are actually selecting the stocks. Uh, so we'll build a portfolio of you know, 15 to 30 stocks and the clients will go into that portfolio of stocks. 
Um, on the private equity side, we have some private equity funds, if you will, and so a client will never go into one single deal, um, but they may. And if we find something that we really like and is very compelling, and um, you know, we may show it around to some of our larger relationships, and they may want to have a have a small bite at it. But th those relationships would be very aware of the risks and rewards of you know one single deal. Clearly, one single deal has got much higher risk reward ratio than you know a 30 stock portfolio. So. Uh, as I said, diversification is, is always the key. Uh, you never know which one's going to work out and which one isn't. Uh, and you, you're always surprised by the outcome. Yeah, boy, that's a <laughs> surprise. Uh, sometimes they're good surprises. Sometimes they're not so good surprises. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah that's mm -hmm. just the nature of the beast. Uh, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the future, um, maybe even uh, whisper the word uh, cryptocurrency. And uh, also uh, get some uh, opinions from Greg about some of the differences of investment strategy. So we're going to do that right after this break. We'll be right back. Hey, Amazon Marketplace professionals. This is Parsimony ERP, and we get one question over and over. Can you please tell me exactly what Parsimony does? Well, we'll try, but this is only a 30-second spot, so we're going to have to hurry. Connect to your Seller Central account and pull all the new orders. Enter the orders with all customer data. Enter all of the Amazon fees and charges. Store them at the item level. Generate profit and loss reports at the SKU level. Automatically generate income statements. Handle multiple companies. Handle multiple brands. Handle multiple currencies. Facilitate budgets and forecasts. Store all customer interactions in a sophisticated CRM system. Manage your supply chain. Budget and task management. Maintain an audit log. Hey, you get it. That's parsimony, P-A-R-S-I-M-O-N-Y dot com. Parsimony dot com. We've got that. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Well, once again, Greg's dropping knowledge bombs on us and really uh, helping articulate why people need to think about their finances maybe in a little bit more comprehensive way. And I like the idea that we've talked about this concept of, you know, the behavioral side of the investment equation, because not not everybody's built the same way. As I you know, talked about with Greg and, and other times, uh, both on the podcast and off, people approach money differently. They approach their comfort with investing or building assets or building wealth, capital formation. They do it differently. And I think Greg has been a really great instructor to help us think about some of these issues and I hope it gives you personally the chance to to really reflect on are you doing the right things could you be doing something different and if so what actions are you going to take as a result of that so as a reiteration this is part two of three with Greg Silberman uh, here on the awesomers.com podcast and this has been episode number 73 once again, all you have to do is go to awesomers.com slash 73 to see all of the show notes and details. Well, we've done it again, everybody. We have another episode of the Awesomers podcast ready for the world. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that you've enjoyed our program today. Now's a good time to take a moment to subscribe, like, and share this podcast. Heck, you could even leave a, a review if you wanted. Awesomers around you will appreciate your help. It's only with your participation and sharing that we'll be able to achieve our goals. Our success is literally in your hands. Thank you again for joining us. We are at your service. Find out more about me, Steve Simonson, our guest, team, and all the other Awesomers involved at awesomers.com. Thank you again. Awesomers.com.